They were leaking highly scurrilous information that was unvetted and unproven to try and make Americans have a vision of the president-elect as somebody who had been in the Moscow Ritz-Carlton having prostitutes urinate on him to the point where he was a blackmail victim of a foreign power. And they were launching an investigation against a general for innocuous calls by exploiting a bureaucratic failure to close the investigation that had been opened against him. Russian hacking was delayed until Friday, perhaps more time leaking the ability to open investigations against people in the middle of a presidential campaign. The key context is what Chuck Schumer told Rachel Maddow after Donald Trump had criticized the CIA for having gotten WMD so wrong as part of the Iraq war. He warned President Trump on Rachel Maddow's show that if he stood opposed to the intelligence community, if he tried to thwart their policy interests or criticize them in any way, they had multiple weapons that they could use and would use to destroy him. Listen to Chuck Schumer himself explain how he views the intelligence community willingness and willingness to abuse their own power. The latest statement, latest tweets, as you were just saying, President-elect's latest, latest yeah. unsolicited pronouncement on the intelligence community. This was his tweet just a little while ago tonight. You see the scare quotes there. The yeah. intelligence briefing yeah. on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time needed to build a case. Very strange. We're actually told, intelligence sources tell NBC News since this tweet has been posted, that actually this intelligence briefing for the president-elect was always planned for Friday. It hasn't been delayed. But he's, he's taking these... Shot. This antagonism yeah. is taunting to the intelligence they tell community. You, you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday of getting back at you. So even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do this. What do you think the intelligence community would do if they were more? I don't know, to? but I, from what I'm told, they are very upset with how he has treated them. In Hello and welcome to Meaning What. I am Matt Wiseman. Um, today we're going to talk about Russiagate. Uh, before we get into it, I'd like to tell you a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, this is a toxic story. There is a lot of politics around the information regarding Russiagate. Uh, we, there, the media coverage is questionable. The controversy is serious. Uh, and I represent myself, um, only myself, and these are my views. I am a progressive. Uh, I am a supporter of Bernie Sanders. I am a supporter of uh, civil liberties, and I am a uh, freedom of speech absolutist. So um, that puts me on one side of the spectrum. I use primary sources that I... I believe are journalists of integrity. Uh, I used, I looked primarily at Matt Tabibi's reporting in um, Useful Idiots and Substack and in the Rolling Stones. I looked at Aaron Mate's uh, analysis that he did in the Gray Zone and The Nation uh, and other publications. Um, and I looked at Glenn Greenwald in The Intercept. I tried to stay away from anybody who was part of the media establishment and saying things that like qualifying terms like likely and suspected. Um, I just, once I saw that, I knew I was going to get led down a rabbit hole. And there's very many rabbit holes with this story. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of ideas of who's involved. And it's very confusing to follow. And so I worked really hard and I put a lot of information together and tried to get to the core of it, even following these uh, three reporters that I respect. So I have four parts to this, um, maybe three. Well, it's, it's gonna be, uh, I'm gonna talk about context and then go to events. Um, I might string into possibilities, but that could be wrapped into analysis. So let, let's do three parts um, and we'll see where that goes. All right, so part one, context, who we are. Well, 
the U.S. has never been a stranger to imperial ideology. We have always been an unofficial colonizer. You know, um, we don't have the name empire ever associated with U.S., but the U.S. imperial idea has been very prevalent in our, the course of our history. Um, it can go back, you could say it starts with Manifest Destiny. It can start with the idea that we're calling ourselves Americans and not citizens of the United States. And that came about under Teddy Roosevelt. It could come about um, when we founded uh, the U.S. in 1776, you know, with the, the ratification of the Constitution, the who was allowed to vote, right? White landowners. They were allowed to vote. They're the ones who had to say. And then even within that system of shared um, sovereignty between the states and the federal government, okay, what if you weren't a state yet? What was the position of the territories? Were they just occupied spaces? Okay, well, who lived there? Were we taking these places? So it gets murky as far as our imperial designs inherently. And there's always been this tension in the U.S. Do Are we in an empire, a hegemonic empire where we're trying to shift ideas? Are we in this to, to, um, to express the enlightenment, uh, the French enlightenment um, ideals that we were founded on in the De Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, um, supported by uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Madison, James Madison, uh, are we interested in civil liberties and having this moral high ground, or are we using that as cover for atrocities that we are um, actively doing to, to places like Panama and Bolivia and, um, and Brazil, definitely in the Western Hemisphere, but also, you know, in places like, you know, Syria and Iran and Iraq in the Middle East, or if you want to go to the... The communist angle, you know, what we did in, in Vietnam, you know, um, in Korea. Like, so these, we're not saints. And we are, it's debatable if we are an, an empire or not. I think that's definitely something we need to look at. But we have done things that are imperial. And we need to recognize that. Um, so are we going to represent hope or fear in the world? Is the United States of America something to be feared or is it something to strive for and be like, and we're going to have be an ideological leader with hope. That's always been this core tension of what the United States of America is. Um, the Axis powers, I got into a rabbit hole of World War II, but just as a, a mention of, of what, what it meant for particularly Italy and Germany to, um, what were the conditions that gave rise to fascism? Um, and then, you know, they, they were as a, Japan idolized these figures as well and kind of fell in line because they wanted the same kind of expansionist aims. They'd had the same kind of racist ideology where the Yamamoto race was considered um, the ideal and should be the leaders of the world. They had ideas like uh, monetary control and, and getting out the white man or uh, Western colonial efforts in the area out of the Pacific theater. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a whole nother argument, but that it is something that was happening during World War II and the Sino-Japanese War, the second Sino-Japanese War, which became the Pacific theater of World War II. Now in the European theater, you had, um, the rise of communism in Russia being a huge threat and anti-communist and anti-socialist and anti-trade unions was a hallmark of how Mussolini and Hitler came to power and, you know, and use this race baiting ideology to seize power and to, um, consolidate power. They were against oversight. They were against democracy. They were top down right? Explicitly top down. Um, they were anti-transparency. They, 
they both had police. Basically, uh, Hitler had the brown shirts, the stormtroopers or the storm regiment, if you like, um, that were supporting his political faction. And then eventually he had the SS officers who broke off from the stormtroopers and killed them all, their leadership, in the uh, night of hide, uh, the night of long knives. And then there was the black shirts that were the um, secret police under Mussolini who uh, blackmailed and killed his political rivals. So this idea of a secret police and this idea of authoritarianism and this, uh, this disrespect essentially for your own citizens and then a massive disrespect for other people that are not your own citizens. There were these undercurrents of um, population control so, you know, growing populations need to expand in order to exert their will upon the world. That was a uh, fascist Italian idea. And that was a, um, it, well, throughout Japanese idea with the Yamamoto plan. And that was also the, um, the idea with, uh, with Hitler. Um, two more points on these fascist dictators. They... Uh, they called themselves leader. Fuhrer means leader. Il Dolce means leader. Um, Mitch McConnell calls himself the leader. And yeah, he is the majority leader of the Senate, but being called the leader has connotations. Um, as well as in, in Italy, Mussolini called his way the third way because he wasn't a traditionalist and he wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't a progressive and he wasn't a conservative, but he was some kind of mixture in between of both. So ideologically pinnings, it makes third way politics in the US kind of look suspect. But the, these influences of fascists on us and the way that they approach ideology is very reminiscent. If you don't see a through line between these people, how they went about their expansionist ideas, their their pro-nationalistic push to conquer others. And Donald Trump, I, I don't know how to help you. I mean, that, Trump set off alarms. He concerned a lot of people when he was running in 2015. He did. Uh, and uh, Glenn Greenwald reported that the CIA was looking into him and they were very concerned about things he was doing, like... Um, he was insisting on diplomacy with Russia. Um, and he was going to continue Obama's policies of being against arming Ukraine in their battle with Russia and against the CIA-backed regime change in Syria and the war efforts in Libya. Um, and he was very much against these kind of new forever wars that Obama had gotten us into. Uh, so, you know, and of course he did do something about Syria. Now his explicit stance on Russia is different and it's changed. And part of the, how it's changed is because of Russiagate. Uh, we have a history. Um, well, first about the powers of the presidency. We, Trump had already set off alarms and people were watching him, but he had, it's been established and he was using the powers of the presidency that the president can lie to the public like they did about the WMDs with George W. Um, they could go to war without Congress like they did, you know, and they got permission from Congress with the War Powers Act um, that never got enforced. And so now Congress doesn't have the ability to declare war in a substantial way. And the presidents have been declaring war perpetually, this war on terror. So these are expansions of powers without oversight. Um, they got the, the authorization that they can kill foreign nationals and civilians. Uh, nine out of 10 um, drone strikes that Obama had orchestrated killed unknown people. So they were just killing indiscriminate civilians because they didn't have right information and they're going ahead with um, bad policies for these uh, kind of blitzkrieg type strikes. Uh, we can detain uh, civilians without due process. That's what uh, Guantanamo Bay is all about. So we've given up a lot of our oversight and our due process and our civil liberties so that we can fight terrorism. But 
in actuality, we've expanded the powers of the executive branch. And Donald Trump was looking like a fascist when he came in. But he becomes this continuation of these expansion of powers. Trump came into office with these things. And he said, well, I can use the media and I can, I can just get on television. And if I can get on television, I could say whatever I want. If I can get heard, I could say whatever I want. And I don't have to be accountable for that. I don't have to be held to account for the things I've done and the policies I've pushed. I'm only held to account for the things I say. And so he's used this idea of image and um, sensationalism to cover for whatever bad policies and bad actions he's done in the in in the background, uh, the actual record he's had as a president. And because our media is covering it that way, we haven't really been able to stop him or wanted to. And so that's, that's something to consider. Um, also, when we're talking about communism, we're talking about Russia, you know, we have the U.S. has a history with the House of uh, Un-American Activities uh, Committee, um, with uh, the Red Scare, with the Southern Strategy, uh, with McCarthyism. So these things for older people that are, you know, 50 and older, they live through this stuff. People were blacklisted in this country and weren't allowed to have a livelihood. And part of that was that they had connections with Russia. They had connections with communism. And so communism, and a lot of people bashed Bernie for this because he called himself a, a democratic socialist. Okay, well, not a social democrat. You know, it's a distinction that doesn't seem that important, but people have a problem with the, the label of communism. They have a problem with the label of socialism. And this fear of Russia is not, it's not entirely unfounded because of the intelligence community. It was kind of based on Russia. Russia really established it in the modern world, you know, and then um, established it in, in the UK and established it in the US. And so they are definitely into making mayhem wherever they go. Now, that being said, their effective power and their strategy to affect us is questionable. With all of these secret wars and this cold war, how do we know who's winning? How do we know who's losing? And where is the truth? You know, how is that not fascistic and authoritarian? You know, you're getting people coming down from on high waging these secret wars and the people that it's affecting directly have no idea. And so if we go about business from the top down, keeping everything secret, are we an antidote to that formula? Or are we just continuing it? Suspected Russia involvement in the 2016 election of Donald Trump and before. It, it breaks down into three things. There was Russian meddling in the election process. Uh, apparently they were in charge of a thousand dollar troll, troll farm campaign, Facebook and Twitter ads. They were in charge of uh, email hacking um, of the DNC's email and Hillary Clinton's email. Uh, and they blackmailed um, Donald Trump and they had some leverage on him and that's why he was the way he was. And so he was working for Russia against his will or, you know, under this leverage. And finally, the collusion that he was a Russian operative and that he was... Um, I don't know, trying to destroy America. So th those three things are the evidence that we have, and that's the charges against um, Donald Trump and against Russia. Uh, and the way that we know, the things that we know, because uh, the media keeps on spinning all kinds of nonsense, uh, and they, they didn't stop this time around either. You know, Russia is going to be in a theme that stays in the corporate media. Forever, they used it right before Nevada on Bernie. Um, he was about to have his biggest win, and they right before they're like, "Oh, you know," before the caucuses take place, they try and sabotage him and say that Russia wants him to win. So, it's these horrible games they're playing, um, and that could be the national security state. We don't know 
where they're getting this information or if they're just making it up in the corporate media. But the way that we know the things we know about this whole situation is from facts, from evidentiary, from investigations. The uh, Special Investigator Robert Mueller's report, which was released, um, I believe, in April 2019, is all about Russian interference in the election. And then uh, you have the Hurwitz report, which is released in uh, December of 2019, and that is all about uh, Crossfire Hurricane and how the FBI went about that. And then we have recent... Um, declassified information that uh, was the House Intelligence Committee's uh, information, and it was the FISA court and and uh, the FBI files. So that's those three sources are really how we know any facts in this whole case. And it's important to realize that like this, there is a source, there is somebody following the evidence, there is real police work being done here, um, and it might seem like there's not. But there is. So uh, let's begin at 2016. We'll start at the beginning. Um, the 2016 election. 2016 election, you had a troll farm called uh, Cozy Bear that was putting out memes, ridiculous memes, and apparently they were related to Russia somehow. It was a hundred thousand dollars that um, that these ads were bought for. They put out ads on Facebook and Twitter, and they were dumb, and they didn't really have any effect. It's a $6.8 billion election, so $100,000 doesn't do much, and these ads didn't do much. Half of them aired after the election. So how's that for election interference? The only reason we're even talking about it is because um, the nickname for the guy was uh, Putin's chef. I guess he was Russian, and that was a joke. Moving on. So with the, the emails, they have evidence that they say they uh, used a firm called CrowdStrike to look into these leaked emails from the DNC by um, and from Hillary Clinton's personal email server, this 30,000 emails. And they looked into that um, and CrowdStrike we, was supposed to be the kind of the firm that confirmed that these things happened. Now, with the release of the testimonies, we know that CrowdStrike said they had no evidence that Russia had taken any information from the servers. So that seems open and shut, right? We also know that Hillary Clinton went on BuzzFeed after the election and that she had said that she couldn't believe that she had lost to uh, Donald Trump. And it was just impossible and that it had to be Russians. It had to be the Russian interference in the election. Uh, and she had even said, um, I'm going to read this title right here. So this is uh, October 15, 2017. Hillary suggests Russia interference in U.S. election was a cyber 9-11. And then she later on in the article compares it to Pearl Harbor. And so there was already this sensationalized version. And we know if you're um, somebody who believes in Bernie, uh, and, and followed the, the 2016 election and then the 2020 election and Bernie's involvement, that there was a lot of media complacency and there was a lot of propaganda about Bernie being um, unfit or responsible for Hillary Clinton's loss. So there's really this lack of her being able to look in the mirror and say that she did anything wrong or that her operation was wrong at all. And as any populist knows, um, neoliberalism has been rejected for years now. War has been rejected for years now. And I mean, at least to, since at least for a decade, at least since 2008 with the election of Barack Obama uh, in 2008, which was kind of this first populist election. And people don't want to be in forever wars. People don't want to have this top-down economic system. Um, people want to be cared for and they want to have a good life. However simple, that's what they want. We know that. But Hillary Clinton doesn't, and she can't, and so it must be Russia. You know, you can see the same thing with uh, Donald Trump. It must be the immigrants because I can't be wrong, and the American people can't be wrong. Um, it's all just smokescreen for their own personal failures. Then there's Julian Assange, who's a WikiLeaks founder, and he posted these emails on WikiLeaks, and they blamed him. 
when they got him from the um, the consulate in the UK, the Ecuadorian consulate where he was staying, he ended up in a US black site. And so as far as interviews on his account and what happened, we're not going to know. He's being held. You know, I don't think he had a trial. So he's just another one of these kind of Guantanamo Bay people where he's just going to sit in there and rot. Um, we do know that when he announced that he had the DNC emails and he published these on WikiLeaks that it was a month later that he met with Gosefer 2.0, who is this uh, supposed to be this Russian asset. So how could he first meet with Russia a month after he had already announced he had these emails? Well, he, he didn't get them from Russia. That's the answer, right? And so if he didn't get them from Russia, how is Russia involved in this? Oh, yeah, CrowdStrike. No. They'd also had uh, been contracted to do something with, in Ukraine where they had discovered the, the, they had discovered some leaked emails and they tried to link that to Russia and that was discredited and they had to retract it. So that was before they were even hired for the DNC. So this company itself is questionable. And so as a source, what are you, what are you doing? They're not even a good source, even though they said they had no evidence. Uh, um, then the blackmail scandal. So the blackmail scandal goes uh, a little something like this. Um, Christopher Steele from the Steele dossier fame. Yep, that guy. He was an agent of MI6 in the UK. He's a UK citizen. That makes sense. He retired and he opened up his own private contracting firm called Orbis Business Solutions. Fine, whatever. And they uh, were hired by Fusion GPS. All right, who's Fusion GPS? First, it was funded by the Washington Free Beacon, which is a conservative outlet during the um, primaries to get intel on uh, Hillary and, and we'll get intel on, yeah, on Hillary because it was a conservative angle. Then they ended up switching and they were, you know, they were fired. They didn't get any intel. The Fusion GPS uh, then would started getting funded by uh, a lawyer for Hillary Clinton campaign. And then, you know, uh, Steele continued to get intelligence. So what is this intelligence, right? Um, it was a 35-page report, the Steele dossier, and they ended up getting fired eventually, and it just became a news story and kind of a weird fact. Um, but in the Steele dossier, apparently it was raw intelligence reports that were unvetted. No one had confirmed any of the stuff was true. He said he had there was a there was a P tape in the ether um, that that apparently uh, Donald Trump had gone to Russia been given prostitutes and they urinated on him and it was all on tape. There's no proof. No one's seen the tape. No one confirms the tape exists. Just this, uh, Christopher Steele. And then there was the whole idea of Trump tower Moscow, you know, and Mueller looked into that and it didn't find anything. Okay. So it's all unvetted and there was no connection. And if there was a connection, Robert Mueller would have found it. There was no connection. All this stuff was just propaganda. There was an informant named Stephen Halper, who was an informant for the Nixon campaign um, during the Carter administration and just doing dumb stuff. And he was discredited in 1980. But he was an informant who said, we... George Papadopoulos is a Russian asset. And he tried to get George Papadopoulos to incriminate himself. Um, that was debunked. You know, he's not, that's the only evidence they found. And George Papadopoulos didn't find it to turn out to be anything. Uh, Carter Page, he was also roped into this by Stephen Alper. Um, and they looked into with the FBI under James Comey um, with uh, Andrew McCabe, his deputy director, they looked into um, into these allegations and they didn't find anything and they dropped it and they moved to close it. 
the CIA and the FBI were, of course, CIA was looking into Donald Trump. They were leaking information to the media. They put a lot of the media had a lot of propaganda out um, with, you know, saying this, suspected this and, you know, uh, alleged that and and likely this. All these qualifiers. Um, and they ran it like it was real news. It's not factual. But. They, we know that there was people involved in this, right? And there was an investigation. Um, and that's how they started the Crossfire Hurricane. The, there was always this hate by John Brennan, by James Clapper, for the Trump administration, but also for Michael Flynn. So who was Michael Flynn? Well, he was an intelligence officer, and then he became, under Obama, the director of... Um, the director of the intelligence agency, right? So he oversaw a lot of intelligence. And, direct, and Michael Flynn was a war hawk. And instead of these this killing campaign of drone strikes, he was against that. And he wanted to capture and kill so that he could interrogate these people in Guantanamo Bay. And he thought they're more useful as informants. He was also against um, the Syrian CIA plot to overthrow the Syrian regime. And he thought that arming the Syrian um, rebels that uh, were in Al Qaeda and they were in ISIS, that it would lead to worse uh, tensions in the area. He thought that, you know, having a Russia backed plan was probably better, where we would side with Assad. Um, There's even this uh, idea of chemical bombings in Syria um, that Flynn suggested was not true and there was no evidence of. But and especially uh, Guta. So that's another aside. Um, but it is important to recognize. And then everything that Flynn was doing, he was a very vocal and frank person, and he understood what was going on. And so he was a target by Obama, and eventually Obama had to fire him because he was always contradicting the Obama White House. He's always contradicting their plans and their their policies instead of just being silent and playing along. So Michael Flynn was kind of a thorn in the side of Barack Obama. And so he didn't like him. When Trump got into the White House, Barack Obama um, took him aside and he was floating that uh, he wanted to make, you know, Trump was floating that he wanted to make Flynn his national security advisor, that he wanted to make him um, maybe his VP before Pence came out of the picture. Um, and then in November 17, uh, well, then he got, uh, Trump got elected, and after the inauguration, Obama had said that don't trust Flynn. You know, um, uh, and then it went on from there. The, uh, the the sanctions and expulsion of diplomats happened in December 29th uh, by Barack Obama, who was sanctioning Russia, and so really became more official of Russia's interference was getting codified by the White House. Um, And on the 29th of December, when these sanctions were actually made, the incoming national security advisor, um, Michael Flynn, he calls Kislyak, who's his counterpart in Russia. And he talks to him and he says, hey, don't escalate. We don't know exactly what he's saying. But he, we know that the the gist of what he said, the te the actual um, testimony and and transcripts have not been declassified. But we know that he says, "Hey, don't don't escalate. I'm coming in in three weeks. We don't want this. You know, we got sanctions against you. Just just relax. We're gonna work with you. We want to work with you. So don't make this worse. Because if you react, we have to react. And so that's he's actually Flynn at the time of this is drunk in, in the islands. He's like in the Caribbean on vacation and he got these word about sanctions and he calls immediately and he says, Hey, and he's like half sauced or totally sauced. And he's like, don't, don't react. Don't do this. And he calls him twice. So to reassure him, like, just don't like, you know, we're going to be there. We're going to do it. And this is totally normal. It's totally natural. Um, There, at the same time, there's another information about this call 
which is a little bit of an aside that Aaron Mate goes into, but the um, there's this unspoken collusion with Russia during the call about Israel. Okay, so what's the Israel angle? What's the little Israel story? Um, the UN Security Council resolution was to criticize Israel's settlement building in occupied territories. It's not their land. They're building settlements. They're moving in. They are occupying them <laughs> physically. Obama was going to abstain um, because he vetoed this before and he stopped it. So he was going to allow the UN security forces to go ahead with this. So the Israeli government asked Trump to stop um, Obama from abstaining. So how did Trump go about this? Trump tasked Flynn with this. So on the call with Kislyak, Flynn asked Kislyak for help and says, please have Russia stop the sanctions uh, against Israel. You know, um, and Russia gave him nothing. They approved the resolution. So this, this re resolution that was passed by the UN against Israel um, went ahead anyway. And uh, I guess there was, so this is evidence of a collusion with the foreign power and Sheldon Addison was involved. Just if you hear about an Israeli story involved with all this, that's the Israeli story. FBI agents Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were in an extramarital affair, they had emails where they were had an anti-Trump bias. You know, no big deal. A lot of people are, you know, not for Trump and they weren't for Trump then. It's fine by that. But they discovered the calls between Flynn and Kislyak, these innocuous nothing calls. And due to a clerical error, the Operation Crossfire Hurricane was never closed. So they exploited that and instead of opening up a new one and having to prove uh, information that they had to open up a new one they just reopened crossfire hurricane um now the doj gets word into this and comey is representing the fbi and he's saying we got to go follow up on this we're going to reopen this and the doj under sally yates who apparently from obama got a, a tip to look into flynn um Sally Yates, who was the, the deputy attorney general and the acting attorney general at the time in charge of the DOJ, she says, no, I'm not going to go ahead with this without notifying the Trump, uh, the Trump White House, the Trump administration. It says everything to do with them. It's just trying to respect. And so she is not on board with uh, Comey and Clapper and McCabe and Strzok and all that. So Comey just go ahead and bypasses the DOJ entirely. He's like, okay, I don't need to, to do anything. And he sends agents to Flynn's office to interview him. And Peter Strzok is there. Uh, and Deputy uh, Director McCabe, yeah, when asked about this, he goes, why should we reopen the uh, operation? I'm paraphrasing. Why reopen the operation? Well, the press was already covering the story, and we wanted to confirm that there was nothing there. So the Washington Post covers a story and now you have to do whatever they say. You have to confirm there's nothing there. I don't know. That's totally ridiculous. You have an operation where you're asking an incoming national security advisor, is there anything to this? Anyway, um, and recently with these uh, released testimonies and transcripts, we know that there was a handwritten note on January 24th, um, the same day that they interview him that uh, by the counterintelligence chief, Bill Prestop, about the aims of the Flynn interview. You know, so he sends us up the ladder and it, and it says basically, what's our goal, truth or lie, so we can prosecute and or get him fired. So it's basically a smoking gun for inducing lying by the FBI. It is a tactic the FBI has used since their inception and it's questionably if it's even legal. On January 24th, like I said, um, less than a month after the sanctions and the calls, the Washington Post leaked prior that Flynn was not a target. Flynn, Je the General Michael Flynn agreed to speak without a lawyer because he was, you know, he was on the idea that he was not a target. He knows there's a recording out there. He's totally aware. And what do they question him about? They question him about the calls. Um, there was no transcript of the calls. He didn't get 
a recording of the calls, but they had these things. So he didn't know that they knew about the calls and he was supposed to be masked regardless. So they question him and they say, hey, in these calls, did you mention sanctions? In these calls, did you have intent of relaxing the policies or relaxing any response from Russia? And he's denied it. And he's like, no, I, I don't remember or um, no, it's that I didn't do anything wrong. We don't know exactly what happened. You know, we know about what happened in these interviews. We don't have testimony about it. The FBI leaked specifics to the Washington Post and to the New York Times that explicitly say Flynn lied to the FBI. And Flynn lied to Pence because Vice President Pence had come out and said that Flynn did nothing wrong. So all of a sudden, the FBI is saying he did something wrong, even though he stands by that he did nothing wrong. And we take the word of the FBI. Uh, the second week in February, you know, a little less than a month later, Trump fires um, uh, the fires Michael Flynn because he lied to Pence. So the testimony of the agents comes out, um, the agents conducting the interview, and they said, uh, and this is in the CNN report on February 17th, Flynn, they said Flynn was not intentionally lying. He was truthful and cooperative is what the FBI agents had interviewed said. And new documents come out from the FBI files, and this is the, the early May release. It's not clear Flynn was being untruthful, and Comey said it's unclear if there is any deliberate falsehoods at all. So here is the guy who actually orchestrated this whole thing, couldn't say that, that this is actually happening. That there, that there was any kind of anything there. March 1st, the Washington Post, the Attorney, Sen uh, Attorney General um, Sessions recuses himself from prosecuting this whole case. He puts Robert Mueller in charge as a special prosecutor to look into um, Russian interference. Okay, December 1st, 2017, Flynn pleads guilty to one count of lying to the FBI. And Mueller who brought these charges against him, recommends no jail time. And the reason, he was cooperative, and he was, yeah, and it was not serious crimes. So any kind of judgment and sentencing was pending. So the judge didn't do anything. May 7th, 2020, this is just around the corner, the Department of Justice requests total dismissal. The new FBI evidence that was released, and this is the, the, the one that we all have, um, he was not lying at the time. It was entrapment. He did. They did not disclose that they had this recording. And even if it was a lie, his actions were appropriate for the office he was in or going to be in. There was no justification for even having the interview entirely. So the FBI screwed up. But honestly, is it that they screwed up? Did they screw up? Or were they trying to extend their powers? Mueller debunks a lot of this. Um, no Americans were charged. Mueller charged no Americans for colluding with Russia. He, he charged a lot of Russian uh, officials. So uh, in response, what ends up happening is Trump uh, becomes a Russian hawk. So what he does is he pulls, um, he pulls out of the, uh, internet, uh, the INF uh, treaty with Russia he, there's a coup in Venezuela, which is um, backed and supported by Russia. You know, that's the whole um, Guaido situation against Maduro, which honestly, that's what uh, Joe Biden supports too. Um, there's the New START plan, the, the nuclear stockpile limitation deal that Trump uh, rolls out. There's a, uh, he blocks construction of the Russia-German pipeline, you know, to move oil. So he's trying to hurt them. He, uh, ends up pulling out of Syria and not supporting Assad or Russia. He just pulls out and says, you know, let's Turkey kind of deal with it. Um, he, he doesn't get these, these buddy buddy with, um, with Russia at all. He actually has war games uh, right next to their war game. So he's threatening them. So Trump, whether he meant what he said on the campaign channel or not, he ends up doing a 180 and he becomes uh, very much a, a Russia hawk. 
which is really what the national security state and the CIA and the FBI wanted from him. So although he didn't do his stated goals and Michael Flynn was, was kind of taken out of the equation, um, the FBI probably lied, most likely lied or discredited. They, in order to get the FISA warrant to, uh, to go after, to start Crossfire Hurricane and get uh, Carter Page and uh, George Papadopoulos monitored and, and um, they needed to go to court. And they went to this FISA court and they made up information from using this bad informant, Stephen Halper, on why they had to go. And they, they straight up lied and said they had more evidence than they did. They'd had probable cause. And so the FISA court gave them multiple warrants to be able to do this uh, investigation. So now it's come out that they lied. What's the consequence for that going to be? When there was no evidence and everybody that was involved knew there was no evidence. Representative Trey Gowdy from South Carolina says, what evidence do you have during these um, interviews? The transcripts have just been released. And you know, Loretta Lynch and Mary McCord and Sally Yates and James Clapper, they all said nothing. We don't have any evidence. You know, uh, the the information that uh, CrowdStrike said they had no evidence. The Steele dossier, you know, like was an unvetted. So we have no evidence for any kind of collusion. And then um, Donald Trump also in response, he arms Ukraine, gives these big deals to Ukraine. And that goes right into Ukraine gate because that's what he delayed the funding for. He was arming Ukraine to fight Russia so that he would, can be a China hawk and prove these people wrong. And then, and then we have all that controversy. But this Russiagate thing is not really going to go away. And uh, we'll talk about analysis in a minute. But um, that's essentially what happens. And I know it's it's convoluted and it's hard to kind of get your mind around what you need to know the basics is that the inspector general's reports that we have from Mueller in april 2019 from uh, horowitz in december 2019 and then released the testimonies um that those testimonies this last part is kind of important those testimonies were the reason they weren't released at the time was because Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff stopped the release of those testimonies. On December 18th, Republican committees and the bipartisan groups were ready to declassify these transcripts. Schiff comes in because uh, he just got reelected and he became the, um, the new head of uh, the Committee of, uh, of Intelligence, Intelligence Committee in the House. And he tells the Director of National Intelligence the White House is not allowed to review the transcripts. And he delays the release. And so that was last year, right? And then Richard Grinnell, the new director of national intelligence just came up. He urged Schiff to release the transcripts and he actually said, we will do it without you. And that's why we have them now in May because Richard Grinnell forced Schiff to do this. But why was Schiff delaying it? Why was Schiff delaying it? Well, because behind the scenes he was doing this thing and then in public on the 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 sunday shows on retro Matto and msnbc he was campaigning for russiagate he was campaigning for ukraine gate he said he had secret evidence um and this is what he was talking about he was propping up the Mueller report and he was trying to hurt bernie right because the all the stuff that happened to bernie during this primary election you had um, in Iowa and South Carolina, he couldn't campaign properly because he was called in for these Senate impeachment trial. You know, that affected Elizabeth Warren too, but Bernie was, you know, the second place, if not the first place. At that time, he was the front runner and he was winning and he was hurt in Iowa. He was hurt in South Carolina, which was vital if you followed this um, primary season. And then in Nevada, um, right before the Nevada caucus happened, they released information that Bernie was potentially a, a Russian plant. Um, that Russia wants Bernie to win. 
And so that smear really took off. And we need to be aware that they wanted to destroy Bernie and that they have this reactionary anti-progressive message. All right. And Adam Schiff was very integral in that, in, in delaying the release of the truth. You know, and the media, of course, is um, was playing this up for all of the all that it's worth, and it made them lots and lots and lots of money. All right. are supported by evidence that have nothing to do with ideology. There's nothing left wing or right wing about evaluating whether there's evidence to support those conspiracies. There's nothing left wing or right wing, left wing or right wing about your views on whether or not the prosecution of Michael Flynn was justifiable or whether it was a corrupt abuse of power. They're not ideological. What they are, are tribal. And this is what I think is a critical point about our politics. Our politics in the United States have become stripped of politics, of ideology. Our politics have paradoxically become depoliticized. So that now, whether you're characterized as being on the left or the right, or the center has almost nothing to do with your actual views on ideological and political questions, the ones I enumerated earlier. They have everything to do with your tribal loyalty, whether you're willing to say things, even if you don't believe them, to advance the cause of one side or the other. Whether the prosecution of Michael Flynn was justified has nothing to do with left-wing or right-wing ideology. It has everything to do with your tribal loyalty. It's now expected that if you're going to be on the left or a liberal or a Democrat, you have to cheer for the prosecution of Michael Flynn because he's on the other side. Just like if you're going to be on the right, you have to view the prosecution of Michael Flynn as having been unjustified. This is a, a terrible and a distorting and a deceitful and a warping and obfuscating way to think about politics. We need to get back to understanding the difference between ideological questions, what are your views on policy issues, versus evidentiary issues, whether you think a claim is supported by the evidence that ought to have nothing to do with your ideological perspective, in fact, has nothing to do with your ideology. So in talking about whether the prosecution of Michael Flynn was supported by evidence, whether in talking about whether the prosecution of Michael Flynn was legally justified, there's nothing remotely left-wing or right-wing about that, except to the extent that, as I mentioned earlier, left-wing views of criminal justice and the criminal law ought to lead one to find the prosecution very troublesome. But beyond that, we ought to be able to engage in evidentiary questions, including things like, do we believe Christine Blasey Ford? Do we believe Tara Reid's allegations against Joe Biden that are also stripped free of ideology and discuss them only as rational beings analyzing evidence independent of ideology. Whether you're on the left or the right should be left to ideological questions. What are your views on foreign and domestic policy? Evidentiary questions, one should be free to discuss those without the stigma or punishment of being accused of having a certain ideology because one is siding with one side's interests or the other. It doesn't make you on the left to cheer Michael Flynn's prosecution, even though Michael Flynn is a right-wing general, just like it doesn't make you on the right to question that prosecution or believe that it was unjustifiable. It is vital that we get back to this distinction in politics to be able to have meaningful, rational discourse with one another. All right, so um, that was Glenn Greenwald uh, talking about rational discourse. And I, I think it's important that we actually say, okay, how do we look at the Russia gate? How do we look at this whole scandal? What do we, what do, we do with it? Um, well, uh, let's first look at the evidence, okay? What, what did they actually try? Who did they try? Why did they try it? Um, the the evidence is this informant who is uh, debunked and you know Mueller had, had debunked all these collusions but uh, that um and they had lied about his information and the reason they were even looking into it for the FISA warrant so or misrepresented themselves um in the FBI 
to even start uh, Operation Crossfire Hurricane. And Stephen Halper was a discredited informant. He was not reliable. And that is one of the primary evidence of where they even started this thing. Then that went into the, um, the, the Steele dossier with his being blackmailed. And that was unvetted. And they never really verified that that was true. Any of that stuff was true. They just took um, Christopher Steele's word on it. And they ran. And then they, um, then lastly, the calls, which is just induendo. You know, there's a drunk man talking to his counterpart in another country. Okay. Okay, well then, is that collusion? Is that Russia interfering in our elections? I think it's clear that if you look at the evidence that the way that this has been prosecuted, the way that people in the media have been talking about it, the way that the national security state has really been pushing it, um, really points to a lot of problems with our system. You know, there is this desire for another Red Scare. There is this desire for another Cold War. There is this desire for the intelligence community and the national security state to take over and to work from behind the scenes. And this is a desire on both sides of the aisle. And people in Washington that are elected officials that are supposed to represent us, some of them are complicit with the with these uh, institutions, these careerists, with these people that have been in office since the Cold War. They've been working in the defense industry. They've been working with contractors. And they're subject to this mass hysteria about Russia. And they are, some of them, you know, must be aware that they're using it as a way to drum up speculation, as a way to drum up ratings, as a way to, to shift the conversation away from what people are talking about, from these um, anti-neoliberal ideology, from this anti-war ideology. They must know. And some of them are just doing as they do, as they've always done. If it's a problem and we can't explain it or we don't want to explain it, then it must be Russia. And that is a top-down idea. You know, the weapons of mass destruction that got us into Iraq and George W. Bush, we lied, they were lied to the American people. And Nancy Pelosi admits that she knew about it and didn't say anything. George W. Bush, you know, knew about it and didn't say anything. We went to the Iraq war when there was no connection between the Iraq war and the Saudis and Al-Qaeda. There was no connection. And we went and fought a war based on a lie that came from the national security state. We are currently being watched and surveilled by the national security state. These powers are a lot like Nazi Germany. These powers are a lot like, you know, uh, fascist, fascist Italy under Mussolini. So we need to be aware of where we are and that propaganda can hurt us. And the truth about media and, and the truth in media matters. You can't just... You can't just make things up, you know? You can't just use innuendo and unverified claims and then say, oh, it's a great story because it's like a real-life spy thriller. It is made up. You are publishing it because it's made up. You think it's a good story, but it doesn't have facts. And it became a constitutional crisis. And some people like to think, okay, it's Donald Trump. He's a stable genius and he's playing 4D chess. He's really just a bumbling fool. And if you look at the national security state, it's also bubbling fools. They lied to the FISA court, you know? And so how you fall on this, this tribal ideology that, that uh, Glenn Greenwald is talking about, it really is like, are you an authoritarian who believes the state should make decisions in secret and be able to monitor and be able to accuse and able to detain people without cause and being able to ignore due process and to start wars without cause? Or are you a civil libertarian who believes that we have 
a constitution and we have laws and we should respect those things. And those things keep us safe, even from our government. And that's the core issue here. Do you believe in a top-down dogmatic system of authoritarianism like Nazi Germany? Like, you know, like Stasi control of West Germany? Like, you know, fascist Italy, where they can steal kids from their families? That, or do you believe in rights? And that we should respect one another and we should tell the truth and we should be accountable when we lie or when we get suckered. We make mistakes. People make mistakes, but I'm not going to forgive somebody who doesn't ask for it. We need to understand that we can't just trust the national security state. We need to question them. And we should have learned that lesson with uh, Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. And we haven't. And they trust, you know, the media trust the national security state. And our politicians trust the national security state as if they're doing what's best for us. They're not. They're a tool. And the defense industry is too big and too well-funded and too set in its ways. We need to, we might not even need the intelligence community at all. It's questionable if they do anything good or if their methods are inherently corrupt. You need to look into the history of the CIA. We need to look into the NSA. We need to look into why are we doing these things and what is the intelligence community actually doing? Because during 9-11, the CIA was supporting American interests while the FBI was trying to investigate potential attacks. And because they weren't talking to each other, we were attacked. The inaction and the in lack of cooperation did this. The Department of Homeland Security during the, the email... Um, the whole email crisis and the leaked, leaked uh, hacked emails uh, told 21 states that they were targets of Russia. And a lot of states dismissed it because they had looked into it and they'd found no evidence of these things. It was all just, you know, bumbling. It was all just our elections kind of being interfered by our own foolishness. And honestly, that's the more likely explanation. But to blame all of the mistakes in the world on Russia doesn't help us get any better. So we really need to look at this, you know, we need to look at our media and is our media acting on our own best interests? Or are they acting on their own best interests? Is there any kind of relationship to the truth? Is there any kind of relationship to the viewership? Something about integrity and respect and honesty? Or is it just about making money? Is it just about serving the, the powers that be, whether they're the national security state or they're the corporations themselves, whether it's just about the bottom line? And these are questions we need to ask ourselves because these things are coming up more and more often. And we need to say, we need to be skeptical and we need to say who benefits from this. It was definitely the foreign policy elites the corporate media, the defense industry, the intelligence community, the national security state, all were bad actors in Russiagate. And they continue to be. And if we don't stop them, if we don't question them, how are we ever going to get out of this situation? Russiagate is really this redefining of things. Uh, Matt Tabibi puts it uh, pretty nicely when he says... Um, it's the new commercial formula for how news is sold. Pre-factual outrage pre uh, precedes the facts. You know, it's a sensationalist. It's a very successful propaganda message. Better than the Iraq war. Aaron Mate calls it um, a, a privilege protection racket. You know, that it... it benefits the media consultants and actually benefits Donald Trump. And so if the idea was to take down Trump, what does it actually happen? Well, it's a bad angle because baseless attack of the opposition, Trump gets cover, Trump comes vindicated by the collapse of any kind of wrong investigation, 
and Trump is given ammunition for re-election because he was made the victim. Now, there is a lot of things like the, the Israel angle um, that Trump did that were actually wrong. There's a lot of things he continues to do that are wrong. And we don't call him on the things he actually does that are seriously wrong, like the emoluments clause violation, you know, like the attack on Qasem Soleimani, you know, like looking other way with, um, with the Saudi Arabia and, and uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Like there, there's things that are being done that are awful. You know, human rights violations at the border. And we are turning our backs on that and looking at the wrong stuff because it gets headlines. Because it's it it benefits certain people. And we need to wake up. We need to do better. Just a quick correction. The Southern strategy had nothing to do with communism. It had to do with using uh, racism as a political tool. All right. Just another correction. Um, Julian Assange was taken by the United Kingdom from the Ecuadorian consulate in the UK, and he uh, is still in the custody of the United Kingdom. Uh, as far as my knowledge, he has not been released to US custody, even though they are pushing for that. But he is effectively silenced in the United Kingdom. So he's not in Guantanamo Bay, he's not in a black site, he is somewhere in the United Kingdom. Maybe he has his very own black site there. I hope this was informative. Um, please uh, like, share, and subscribe, get all my videos and, uh, and all my uh, podcasts, uh, my videos at The Last Outlaws, and I will see you soon. Thank you for listening. I appreciate any questions or feedback. This is a complicated one, and I, I, I can understand if there is confusion. Thank you.